0: Welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. I realized, writing this monologue, I've never really asked the audience how they're doing. I know it's implied, but I just wanted to say, I hope you're doing well. I find myself being more reflective for good reason today. Today is the season finale. I've been reflecting a lot on what this first season has really become and turned into, especially when looking at what the original intention was. But we'll reflect more on that later. Let's talk about this episode. This is a very special episode, and I honestly think that there's no better fit for a season finale. This episode is in collaboration with the MENA Forum. For those of you who don't know, MENA is an acronym. It stands for Middle Eastern North African. And the whole forum has really helped in facilitating not only this conversation, but the whole production of this episode. So I really want to give a special shout out to them. They're a really great organization doing amazing work organizing events on campus and really... Bringing focus into issues from the community and from the region. Uh, Please give them a follow. Their website will be in the podcast notes down below. On today's episode, we have Professor Mark Habib. Professor Habib is a professor at the Master's School of Foreign Service. Professor Habib is an expert in government relations, foreign policy, and negotiation strategy, especially as it relates to identity and conflict in the Middle East. When we initially went out and pitched this collab with Professor Habib, he really gave some great insights and some different ideas that I personally had not considered. So I'm really grateful that he came on and helped bringing his expertise and life experience to this conversation. It's been really incredible, but it could not have happened without Rwan Chikert, who is the current president of the MENA forum and soon to be MSFS graduate. Rowan is incredible. I know I say that a lot, but he really is. I'm really happy she came on and helped guide this dialogue, especially in helping ground the conversation in, I guess what you would call the new generation of the Mina diaspora, right? She's a member of the study abroad diaspora, which we talked about a little bit from a different perspective, a different cultural perspective on a previous episode. And yeah, she really brought a lot to this conversation. And it was really cool to see the cross-generational Lebanese diaspora in dialogue. Here's Professor Abib and Rowan. I hope you all enjoy
1: And this, what made our work this special. And you see us this dedicated because also like, don't just do it for yourself, like yeah. for the form. Mm-hmm. It's not enough as much as you love the cause. Like for me, this is my passion. This is my country. I wanted to change the perspective of the Middle East because I still get annoyed when someone tells me, Oh, Middle East you have a desert in Lebanon? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we need to do some geography. And like, you know, so I felt like my year are very familiar with what the Middle East is because I keep talking about it. I keep giving jokes. Like, I keep talking about religion. I don't think it's taboo. No, you need to know. Like, we're Mm -hmm. not all extremists from any other side. Like, so I felt like, I I had this role to do this, an ambassador, to just show what's the Middle East.
2: Right.
1: And like, now I'm glad, like, I'm glad because other students do. Like Latin Americans shows you the community, invite you out on their holidays. Yeah. Like you learn a lot from them. Why don't we do that? Why do, do we cocoon in a group and stick with each other without like externalizing this to students? So I felt that was my role to do it.
0: So I think that's a segue into this. This is a special collaborative episode of Minority Report. We are working with the MENA to have this conversation. This is very exciting. Professor Habib, would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Certainly. My name is Mark Habib. I teach in the master's MSFS program here at Georgetown, the master's in foreign service. I teach in the concentration of global politics and security. This is my 21st year, I think, or 22nd. I lose count after a certain point. And the academic area that I teach in is conflict resolution, negotiation, and identity in conflict, the role of identity, group identity in conflict and in conflict resolution.
0: I think it's going to be really interesting to delve into. I remember when I first reached out, there was a little confusion where you're like, I don't know about diaspora. And yeah, it's like, yeah. not, you know, let's.
2: Well, I am yeah. a member of the Lebanese diaspora. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, uh, I was born here, but my father was an immigrant. So I, I just, yeah, I wasn't sure initially it didn't. It didn't coincide with my teaching Put it that way. I'm glad that we helped convince you.
1: I'm Rowan Shekhar, a second year MSFS student, which is the Masters of Science and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. I'm also the president of the MENA Forum, which is the Middle East and North Africa Forum at Georgetown. We cover around 21 countries from all over the region. In addition, I'm Lebanese, so I came here to the U.S. two years ago, and now getting to know the country as a permanent resident and as an immigrant.
0: Thank you both so much. Thank you, especially. Thank you for helping organize all of this. This has been really f- interesting and a Thank good you experience. For that. No, of course, of course. I wanted to lay out for the audience what this conversation is going to look like, which is, in my thinking, we're going to have a section about assimilation versus promotion of identity specifically. The second part of the conversation would be more involving Professor Habib's work and identity and conflict. And then finally, we would close out with a conversation of, how, how would you phrase this? Lebanese versus Lebanese Americans? Or what do you think? Let's hand it to you.
1: I would say the life and the, the daily basis of a new American, as they call it. Like, it's now very known as like new American. And when I first heard this term, I'm like, what does it mean? And it's, just someone getting to know how to identify with the American culture, how to become present here. And it's like one step away from being a Lebanese American. This is the new identity you're fitting in, you're learning and you're becoming.
0: Let's start out with assimilation versus promotion. Professor Abib, when we were first talking about this, you came at it from a different perspective than I would have thought about you talked a lot about your early years and your upbringing being a part of the Lebanese diaspora and also the Cuban diaspora in Alabama. And I, I was really interested in how did your upbringing in Alabama as a Lebanese Cuban-American inform your work and your research?
2: Well, that's an interesting question. And I think the key, the key part of that question is in Alabama, because I think the experience of any immigrant group in part is going to depend upon where they, where they land in the United States, where they end up, where what, what that community is like and what's going on in that community. And I think, you know, for me at least growing up in Alabama and it's, well, my maternal grandfather was Cuban. I didn't know him. My mother, he left the family, my mother's family when, when she was two and she didn't really know him very well. So that part of my life wasn't very pronounced. The the Cuban ethnic side of my family was much more the Lebanese because my father had seven brothers and sisters. So I had lots of cousins and and the whole Lebanese side was, was much more pronounced than the Cuban side. I, I think how it affected me as I was growing up, I, the thing is in in alabama and 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 I would actually say this was true for most of the country not not the 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 South often gets has often been targeted or specifically focused on as the center of racism and the racist struggle of the United States and the civil rights struggle and all that but I mean let's acknowledge it racism is an american problem it's not it's not just a southern problem I think it was. If I'm not mistaken, it was Malcolm X who said, Mississippi begins at the Canadian border. So what he was essentially saying is this entire country yeah. has has the problems that we often have projected onto the South. But if you think in psychodynamic terms, that's what people often do. They project their dark sides onto an enemy or onto an other or onto within a family system, they could, one child could end up being designated as the problem child. And then you don't have to acknowledge your own culpability in things. But it is true that racism was a major political factor growing up in the South. And the, my family in particular on the Lebanese side, they were very focused on assimilation. They wanted to be seen as Americans, they wanted to be seen as white Americans. My family did not change their name. They we continued to go by Habib, but I had relatives. A major line of my family is the last name is Tanoose. They almost all changed their name to Thomas, hmm. like the entertainer Danny Thomas, who was a, a Tanous related to my family. People named Cory would change their name to Corey, sometimes with the C, C-O-R-Y, which sounds kind of English, but actually it was Khouri in Arabic, there was no communication or there was no transmission of language. So the first time I ever heard my father speak Arabic, I was 18 years old and we did a family trip to Lebanon, which me and my brothers actually persuaded my father to do. He didn't want to do it. He never wanted to go back to Lebanon. even though He was born there, was 11 years old when he immigrated here, but to him, it was all a new life in America and wanting to be American. And uh, we went to Lebanon and we got off the plane after the flight from Paris and we went up to the customs and passport and my father started talking to the guy in Arabic and and I had never heard him speak a word of Arabic, not a word, not even, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing. He had just, he had, had totally suppressed using Arabic, which you know, obviously he knew because his mother never learned English. So he spoke Arabic well into the fifties and sixties before his mother died. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to. You know, transmit that to us. They they wanted us to be white American kids, and it posed some problems for us growing up. Us meaning me and my brothers. I had two brothers. I have two brothers, because first of all, our our phenotype, if if your father is lebanese and your mother's part cuban you're not going to look like a northern european white american (laughs) it just isn't going to happen you can't fake that so there was always kind of this struggle of feeling like we weren't really the same as our classmates and as people around us my father and mother were accepted as white people in the sense of rights. I mean, we lived in a neighborhood of white people. We went to the regular public schools. At that point, the schools were segregated, but obviously we went to the regular public schools and public places and restaurants. And my father was a physician. He was the only one in his family who went to college and, and then went on to medical school. So he was a physician. So I think one of the reasons so many immigrants go towards medicine is that it gives you a certain stature in a community. When you're when your doctor takes care of you, you you're suddenly less prejudiced against people who (laughs) who are, you know, darker complexion because it's your doctor and he's taking care of you. So my father was actually very well respected within the community, but there was always this sense of we are not really of this culture. So I like to say I, I was born in Alabama, I was raised in Alabama. So I'm, I'm from Alabama, but I was not of Alabama, if that makes sense. One of my formative experiences as a child, I was in, I believe it was fourth grade. And my teacher that year was a Jewish woman. And we were once having this kind of free form discussion in class. I think we were studying the year that we studied Alabama history or something like that. But we were talking about the Civil War in class. And I'm sure from a very, from a perspective that would that would be very unacceptable today, very unpolitically correct. And it became this kind of free-form discussion where the kids were talking. And one kid said, my family's related to Robert E. Lee. And another kid said, everybody's related to Robert E. Lee because that was a big thing in the South. You wanted to kind of, you could say, I'm my family's related to Robert E. Lee or related to Stonewall Jackson, or we're somehow related to, you know- These Confederate heroes. Heroes. Yeah, exactly. That, That was a big thing, that meant a lot. So this other student said, everybody's related to Robert E. Lee. And the teacher, as I said, was a Jewish woman, looked at me, she made eye contact with me and said, we're not all related to Robert E. Lee. And I felt this suddenly it was like me and Teach, we're bond, you know, like we have a bond. And it was like she was aware of that. She was conscious that, and obviously what she was doing was trying, she knew what I was thinking, which is I'm not I, the way I'm related to Robert E. Lee. And she was, it was kind of her way of saying, it's okay. We're not all related to Robert E. Lee. And, but, but that was kind of the general environment, you know, that my childhood was. So I became, as I got older, I became more conscious then of what it meant to be Lebanese and what Lebanon was. And and I became very interested in the family heritage, even though my father really was and did not encourage it, did not encourage it at all. Culturally, he did. He loved Lebanese food. He loved, you know, the whole kind of cultural attributes. But everybody loves Lebanese food, right? I mean, <laughs> so, I mean really, I yeah. you could I've traveled, in, you know, around the world and, and Every town has a Lebanese restaurant somewhere. So, but he he culturally he he did obviously love love Lebanese culture. culture and Lebanese food. But outwardly he wanted to be a a
0: white, Alabamian. What inspired you to push back against that? I mean, if you have your father who, maybe not yeah. act, you know like what inspired you to keep looking into your heritage, when no one else in your family did or had any interest uh, Yeah,
2: I, I don't really know. I mean, I always had an interest in the world. I mean, even as a child, I used to. We had this Time Life book series, Countries of the World. It was like 30 volumes. And that was my favorite books as a young child, going through and looking at the pictures of different countries and different places. So that interested me. The fact that I didn't really feel that there was something off. I, I'm not I had playmates who were, you know, regular Alabama kids of white, northern European descent. But I always had this sense of, I don't quite fit. I'm not, I'm not quite this. A cousin of mine once described it as, we're not quite white. Uh, and, And, you know, kind of in a broader political context, and we were talking about this earlier, race plays such, is such a, defining aspect of American history, of American culture, of American society. And, you know, if you were an immigrant and you came to this country and you landed in New York or New Orleans or wherever you you landed, even if you didn't speak English, even if you didn't know a word of English and couldn't communicate to anybody, it wouldn't be long before just perceptually, just looking at the world around you that you would realize that white people are privileged the darker the skin color the less privileged you see who's doing what kind of jobs and again I'm talking about you know my father immigrated here in the early 1920s he was he, was, he got married very late in life so he immigrated here oh well, it was over 100 years ago and you know you could just look around you who's in charge white people who have the good jobs white people who's dre- who are dressed nicely white people who aren't dressed nicely. So what became very important, and I think this, whether you were coming from Lebanon or Italy or Greece or wherever, it became very clear that I want to be regarded as white. That's, that's, That's very important. So it became very important to not be black, to not be seen as any shade darker than than white and as i said earlier there is such a thing as phenotype so you know you some of that to a certain degree you can't fake that and of course african-americans cannot fake it at all and i think that drove the assimilation and was it stronger in the south than anywhere else maybe it might have been stronger in the south simply because of racism was such a hot issue in the South. And it may have been stronger because there were smaller communities. If my father's family had stayed in New York, they could have moved to Brooklyn, to the Atlantic Avenue area. There was a strong Arab community there. So there was a safety in community. So you had like little Italy's where the Italians lived and there was a certain safety in big numbers, but Birmingham did not have a large Arab or Lebanese community. so. There wasn't that safety in number. Kind of had to swim, swim with everybody else. And in that case, for your own and your family's survival, you wanted to be sure that you were seen as white.
0: Yeah, i There's a lot to pull from that, but I'm really interested because when we reached out, you you were very interested in the fact that this is a platform of promotion like it's about highlighting identity and right. the specific facets of it and i'm curious i mean what do you make of that in our modern era what do you make of that comparison
2: you mean the fact that now identity promotion is more accepted yes is, is yeah. more hip or practiced i think a, i think a lot of it is just numbers demographics there are more people of diverse identities i'm sure you've all seen the the statistics about that we will become a majority non-white country by the year depends upon the demographer who's making the estimate. But, you know, I've seen numbers as early as 2035 that that the United States ceases to be a majority white country. Still be the white. Northern European would still be the dominant, you know, the largest dominant group. So I think a lot of it is just numbers. I think a lot of it has been the result of the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement, while clearly focused on people of African descent, people who had been enslaved peoples, clearly opened the door, I think, for the acceptance of more peoples, different kinds of people. And so after the civil rights movement, there was a more of an acceptance of that. I think there's a greater cultural openness now to different cultures. And I'm thinking about things like, I was talking about Lebanese cuisine earlier, but you know, you can, when I was growing up in Birmingham, the, in the 60s and 70s. There were Chinese, There were a few Chinese restaurants. There was a couple of Lebanese restaurants, you know, and of course Italian pizza places and all that. But, I mean, that was pretty much it in terms of diversity of, of cooking. I go to Birmingham now because my 95-year-old mother still lives there and one of my brothers still lives there. And you can literally get anything. You can get sushi, there's Peruvian restaurants, there's a Nepalese restaurant downtown. There's so I think there's just been this kind of flourishing maybe of cultural acceptance. Maybe some of that is I hate using the word because it's it's such a cliche term, but globalization, just the the, the, the enclosure of the world, the world becoming smaller and, and just people more exposed to different things. I think that has helped, you know, encourage identity promotion as opposed to assimilation. Music. You look at music, I mean, global music. I mean, and and you even look at American culture. I mean, honestly, okay, this is going to be a a very exaggerated statement, and and, and I could probably get pushback from this. But what we call, like, say, American culture, American music is mostly black music. That's just the reality. That is American. You look at rock and roll. You look at what Elvis Presley was doing. This was black music, right, with with a good input from Appalachian. So you have Appalachia mm-hmm. and African American. The banjo. The banjo was a black instrument. It became an Appalachian instrument. But I, I think there was kind of a more of an acceptance of that. That it so that you know you you have a culture today where you know the the largest purchasers of of. Uh, rap and hip-hop or white suburban kids you know yeah so i mean all of those things i think serve to maybe lessen this impetus to assimilate because what assimilate meant earlier was be white now assimilate really just means being american so i can assimilate i can be an american but also be a latino i can be american but also be lebanese i can be american but also value whatever culture i came from wasn't the case when i was growing up yeah or at least not growing up in alabama in the
0: 60s and 70s for one i wanted to bring the question to you what what do you think of that question about promotion of identity as a new american as you said
1: i feel like our experiences are changing like the same person that would have came to the U.S. like maybe in the 60s, 70s, 80s or maybe even before because there was the wave of the 20s, was yeah. last time is different from the wave of now and now is divided to very new waves. Like I was talking to a, a Saudi Arabian friend that moved here in the late 90s that had a totally different experience than me, even coming from a country that wasn't at the time as open as Lebanon. And then I looked at my wave of immigration that came in 2015, like each of us had a very different Mm -hmm. experience in the US. And maybe this identity of, that Professor Habib was talking about, that Lebanese want to identify as white is just fading away. And we want to be identified as a minority now to get also the benefits of whatever benefits the minority gets. We want to go through this fight with the others and identifying with the others. What the, You see now also a lot of Lebanese trying to squeeze in Latino groups. It's, okay, this is where we are going to mm. find support. I'm not generalizing. It depends to which state mm-hmm. they are. This, one question that I actually wanted to ask you, do you think any Lebanese from any region from, Lebanon, or any arab just to limit it to those nationalities that will come either to chicago to new york to alabama whatever state would they have all the same experience
2: no no i i agree i agree with you. i don't think they would because well for one thing all lebanese are not the same so most of the immigration that happened the lebanese immigration that happened at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century which was when my father came in and he really got in just by the skin of his teeth because it was 1921. And in 1924 was when the infamous immigration law was passed in this country that strictly limited immigrants from non-white countries. But most of those were Christian. They were overwhelmingly Christian Lebanese. And a lot of them were my father's family was Greek Orthodox, Antiochian Orthodox. A lot of them were Maronites, so they could they could assimilate into the Catholic Church very easily. In my father's case, he became Protestant because, again, that was very much about whiteness, right? You wanted to, you didn't even want to be, even though there was a, there, there were several Greek Orthodox and one Antiochian Orthodox church in Birmingham. He didn't, he wanted to join a Protestant church so that his kids could be seen as white Protestants. But then later immigrants, you know, have not been so overwhelmingly Christian. So I think part of it is, is that, who, who you are when you, when you come, And then part of it is what the impetus is. You know, why are you kind of fleeing civil war? Are you with in my father's era it was it was after the Ottoman rule and after World War One when they couldn't leave because you just couldn't physically get on a boat during World War One and leave Lebanon. But, you know, there was a mass starvation in Lebanon during the during that period. A quarter of a million people died in Mount Lebanon. So it was kind of fleeing oppression and, you know, the whole American dream, streets paved with gold, that, that kind of mythology. It's a strong narrative. It's a very powerful <laughs> narrative, it's yeah. a very powerful narrative. So I think it depends upon who you who you were in Lebanon before you left. And what is the impetus? What is the impetus for leaving?
1: That changed the whole narrative. The the way you look at the world, because also some people leave Lebanon after visiting the US like 10 times or five times. Like they know what the US looks like. But X other example that never flew out of Lebanon and all of a sudden end up in any state in the US, that would be like, a big shock for them like where I am what's happening why is the highway this big like right. as silly as it is like we don't have those big highways it's three lines in Lebanon this is the biggest highway that cut the whole line of the country and then you end up on... so it's a cultural shock from oh yeah everywhere to everything like I gave just a silly example to just show you mm. how much it's different for someone to move countries yeah. like yeah it's better opportunities it's uh, human rights, like some human rights that we don't have in our country. I'm, I'm going to give the example of electricity, like we don't have electricity. So moving here, I'm just happy that whenever I touch the bottom, I have light in you my house mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Yeah. and yeah, this is a human right. So, yeah, people are coming for opportunities. They're fleeing something at the end of the day. You wouldn't leave a country just for the sake of living unless there is a better opportunity, mm-hmm. something to run after nobody likes to leave their comfort zone forever you like to leave it for a vacation but there's a reason pushing you away
2: yeah yeah i mean i think it's a push-pull but it depends yeah is it mostly push or the mostly pull you know it, it so it, again that varies by immigrant and it know.
1: varies by era so let's yeah. look at Lebanon, 2012. there was some small instabilities but Lebanon two thousand and twelve is not Lebanon two thousand and nineteen. There was right. not this catastrophic and chaotic situation. So you look at what was pushing and what was pulling mm. the balance was different than the two thousand and nineteen balance, let's call it that way. So yeah, it's it's very different. And like today for a normal Lebanese, how hard is it for them to come to the US? Like it's a struggle.
2: Just to get mm-hmm. the under what yeah. what legal terms are you going to come
1: yeah to? so yeah. it's very hard like and like you can't be very creative with the us you know there's not any more channels to try to be creative and move like you want a job okay you need to pay a fortune to do a master's and try to stay on yeah. your opt convince an employer that's a challenge for people you need resources before coming if yeah. you're planning to go through this channel and other channels are really hectic and hard to make.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think it's something, especially from my vantage point, right, where it's like I can see myself and I reckon with like, ah oh, yeah, I'm a brown American. I can understand that there are some things that I face in this country other people do not. But then I talk to my friends who are from you know Kuwait or Costa Rica or Lebanon. It's like I, I it is a privilege to be here. Like there are things that I simply do not have to deal with or reckon with in the same way just because i was born here and not somewhere else i I think that's something that it's important to balance out and especially like you said right people don't want to leave unless they have to leave and that's something that's come up on this show a lot Yeah.
2: yeah i think that's something that americans don't understand i think when you see or when you hear politicians use terms like caravan immigrant caravan marching towards the united states or you see European politicians talking about these boatloads, you know, of mm-hmm. people. People don't do that just for the hell of it. You don't, you know, when you, when you see an African woman or man or a Syrian woman walk, getting onto a rickety boat with their two-year-old child, you don't do that if just on a whim. Mm-hmm. I think I'll go see what it's like to live in Europe. No, you don't do that. You do that because where you are has become unlivable. And if you are a Guatemalan or a a Salvadoran and and your 11-year-old son is getting pressured to join a gang, you know, or a Haitian leaving Mm -hmm. leaving hell, because Haiti has had such a horrific historical course, primarily because of what the French did in leaving Haiti. But you're leaving. you, You don't want to leave. You know, you don't and and you and that's why you hear stories about. I have a cousin who Lebanese cousin grew up in Lebanon, got a job at the World Bank, so a very good job, came here and worked at the World Bank, then retired. He retired, sold his house in Bethesda and moved back to the ancestral village in Lebanon. I mean, there's this pull of home, you know, and I think Americans have this feeling that, oh, all these people just want to come here and take our jobs and you know, live off of our country. First of all,
0: is nothing.
2: Is nothing. Is, yeah. if you want to live off a government? Go to Denmark. You know why would <laughs> why would you come here if you want to live off the government? <laughs> the government doesn't do anything for you here. Barely provides health care. You know. Yeah. But yeah, it's that push. We don't look at the push. What is driving them here? And often, sadly, with Central America. The, the total disaster that Central America has become, not all of it, but certainly Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, uh-huh. is in large part due to policies that we carried out in the 80s, you know, which were neocolonial, neo-colonial policies. So it's like that it as a Pakistani-British writer who famously said, speaking to his British fellow citizens, we are here because you were there. We are here because you colonized us and messed up our countries. And that's why we now are coming here. And and, you know, but if you look at the countries in Central America that where the U.S. had a presence, but where our presence was not so destructive, like Costa Rica and Panama are the two main ones, you don't have mass migration from those countries. You know, you don't. It's from the countries that are the triangle. Yeah, yeah, it's Mm -hmm. from the triangle. And it's climate change. It's the results of the, the American-supported wars in those areas. And they're leaving the push is what's primarily
0: behind that. I don't want to stray too off topic, but on one of the last episodes I did, it was with this Arab DJ group, actually. Mm-hmm. They are called Laylit, And in the conversation, Philippe, one of the co-founders I was talking to, he told me, he, he was like, I would be personally very conflicted if I were an American, knowing that my tax dollars go towards war campaigns or mm-hmm. destruction and degradation of Central America, the Middle East, North Africa. And that stuck with me. It really did and it, it's still something I'm reckoning with personally. Yeah. Just to think about that in a way where it's like you said I am a product of these specific actions. Yeah. And yet I am contributing, contributing. even in such a small way just by being here and being yeah. a citizen, right? Just by the nature of this country.
2: Paying taxes.
0: Exactly. You know. I'm really, I want to look at this culturally now, right? because I remember when we were talking, I want to talk to Rowan for a little bit also. But can you talk to us a little bit about what your experience has been as a part of the study abroad diaspora as a new immigrant? This is for a reason, but I want to just get the.
1: I think the vol- my identity as a student wasn't the hardest to to play a role or to fail, as we say, because coming as an international student to the U.S. is very common, is well seen because you're coming to study, you're paying this master's degree or this undergrad degree, you're getting a job for a year with your OPT and you can challenge it, you're leaving afterwards. My case was completely different. I'm coming, yeah, as the identity of a student, but I'm having a baggage with me which is my immigration status. Like I couldn't nor identify with the international students that are stressing about finding a job because this is why they get privileged to work on campus or identifying with the immigrant community that knows about the U.S., that knows politics. You know, I have a very shallow knowledge at the time when I moved to the U.S. about what it means to be a Republican, what it means to be a Democrat, what is a hard line, oh, you can't touch this topic, like the abortion topic, like in Lebanon, yeah, abortion is a big topic, but it's not as politicized in a way. So when the conversation started in the U.S., I didn't know it was a sensitive topic. Like I thought it's just I can give my personal opinion, what I think about it, what I learned from my religion, what I learned from my parents or even my upbringing in a school in a French school that gave us like the scientific explanation of what an abortion would be so for me i didn't know it was sensitive so how i would identify with Mm. a society when i don't know what is a red line when what is not when i can't sometimes speak the way i speak because people do not understand my accent Oh my God, how many times? Like, I would be on the phone and, ma'am, can you repeat that for us? I'm like, I just spoke English, but yeah, sure, I would mm-hmm. repeat it for you. But it was my, actually, my accent that in every Uber I take, people will ask me, where are you from? And I'm like, why people are asking me, where are you from? Why, why they don't ask other people? And it ended up being my accent or the way I say something or the way I ask for something, a location when I should know it, or I shouldn't say the zip code when I should like city stuff daily based that I feel many immigrants coming as an adult to the U.S. when you have a built in personality, you have a way you speak, a way you act, a way you live your life and then moving to a country is more challenging than bringing a kid or even an 11 years old. And he can mold way easier because those ages are flexible they they learn something quicker than adults by nature and they just fit in they will just be complaining to their parents for the first two two weeks three weeks i want my my friends i want whatever food i used to eat but after two to three months he's happy or she's happy because they just now fit in, they got used to, they have new friends, they have new toys they didn't used to have in, in their country. So yeah, it, it is pretty challenging and it matters. The experience, yeah, it was challenging and it was different. I had to learn how to identify. I had to learn more about the country. I like a silly story that I always tell people, it's the coins story. I was one time paying in cash first it's not common anymore to pay in cash in my country we do pay in cash this is when you when you buy small stuff you pay in cash you don't use your card so i was like holding all those pennies and i couldn't understand what is what so she looked at me and i remember that was like maybe six years ago and my mom taught me since the day i received my green card if they ask you where are you from you say chicago and I, I, was, I was in the supermarket by myself paying for that coffee and it, it seemed that I wasn't from there because I couldn't know which one is a 10 cent and which one was a 20 mm-hmm. cent. So she was, where are you from? And I was like, I'm from Chicago. I'm from here. I was in Chicago at the time. So she was like, no lady, where are you from? And she insisted and she kept insisting and I kept saying Chicago for like five minutes. And she's like, you don't even know our money. You're not from here. It was for me a first harsh experience. You know, I'm not even welcomed. I don't know the money. Yeah, but give me time yeah. to, to learn yeah. your money, to learn your brands. Like sometimes I don't know. It's a milk brand. I, like it's that silly because it's not available to my eye when I grew up. So give me time. Let me feel welcome. I didn't feel welcome. I'm, I'm not the only one. I can assure you, I'm not the only one not to feel welcome. But then sometimes you change cities or you change context and you feel, whoa, people are waiting for you to come. They like you. They want your expertise. They want this, the fact that you speak many languages, because an immigrant always speaks many language, always know more than one country. Most of the times at least.
0: This, that's funny you say that last word, because specifically my friend from Kuwait, Ali, he, one time we were talking just about politics and he was he told me like, You're smarter than most Americans. And I was like, (laughs) I didn't know how to respond at first. I was like, thank you. But then you think about lived experience, and I'm like, my parents are immigrants. Like, they expect a little more of me than if they were not that. You know, I think that's something to deal with, and just, you know, thinking about racism, but also xenophobia, where even if, like you said, like not specifically this one type of person, you can be olive skinned, but you have an accent, and someone's gonna look at you funny. Someone's going to question you about your origins or your intentions.
2: Yeah, the taxi driver is going to say, where are you from? Yeah. Which they wouldn't say to somebody who exactly. looked Northern European. Like- this
1: is the first question I get in every Uber I think, And like by now I got used to it. I'm very proud to be Lebanese. Don't take me wrong. I'm more than proud. Like sometimes when people do not ask me, I have to tell them. I'm Lebanese. <laughs> yes. I want to say it. But also it's hectic. Why do you always ask? I'm tired of hearing it because I'm from here. By now, I'm, fra- I'm paying taxes, you know, like whatever benefits you are getting, I'm paying also for it. I know that at the end of the year, I pay those taxes. Yeah, that
2: question is not, uh, that question is not always, you know, aggressive, or uh, I, I had a friend who was a international relations expert, worked on the Hill, and whenever I would share a taxi with him in DC, this was back in the 90s, whenever I, he worked in Congress for the Foreign Relations Committee, whenever I'd share a taxi with him, he would almost always ask the taxi driver, where are you from? Because the taxi mm-hmm. drivers is But and if the taxi driver said at that period, there were a lot of taxi drivers from Ethiopia, Eritrea, because there was a the war mm-hmm. in Ethiopia. If the, if the taxi driver said I'm from Eritrea, my friend Steve would immediately engage him in a conversation about, so what do you think of the political leadership? What do you think? And, and they'd actually have, sometimes I was like, okay, we're at our destination. I need to get out of the car. Would you shut <laughs> up? Because you know, they were like having this exchange. So with him, it was just curious. He just wanted to know, where are you from? I want to talk to you about where you're from. So it's not all what, you know, it, 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 but still, it's kind of intrusive because why are you asking me that?
1: Especially I feel now it's not I don't I don't want to say not accepted, but it's weird. So my first few weeks, even here in the program, I would ask it's for me, it's an icebreaker. Where are you from? Especially that I've been a study abroad student before in different countries of the world. So the first thing you would say at orientation, where are you from? So just I I tell you, oh, I visited this country and I start a conversation with that person. When I moved here to the US, for me, whoever did not or had like exotic features, they could have been Lebanese. And I would just ask them, where are you from? And they would look at me and say, I'm from Illinois. I'm from New York. Mm. And for me, it doesn't end here. If you tell me your heritage, it it will get to a more interesting conversation because we can bond on something specific and like talk about it for another 30 minutes. So I felt it was not any more appropriate to ask, where are you from? And I just tried to find a new icebreaker for my conversation because mm. it was something very sensitive. I felt.
2: Yeah, it depends upon the person, how they interpret why yeah. you're asking. I think has a lot to do with it. But this I wanted to come to this issue you talked about with the change, the small well, coins and all culture shock is such a real thing that when I was this undergraduate at Georgetown, I spent a year in England University of Sussex in England I mean they speak English it's you know we listen to English rock music it's like I can't tell you the amount of culture shock I suffered you know being in England because the English are different (laughs) they they do things differently have different customs they use different English words and it was real culture shock so that's between and that's with two cultures American culture and English culture that are actually very similar at least they share a language they share a lot of you know television shows and music and all that so if you can have culture shock even in that context it's you know it's very pronounced when you're coming when there's a different language or you're a little bit slower in responding to a question because you have to kind of interpret you know the question so yeah that's a real that is, culture shock is a very real very real thing and it's almost like a constant reminder so a constant reminder constant reminder that you're not fully of this place.
0: But then it's really interesting to me how some cultures in this country, maybe not fight back against it, but work against it, right? Like you said, Little Italy, Chinatown, the entire city of Miami, like there are are places in this country that are this country, but different, like it's an ethnic enclave.
2: Because there's enough, if there's demographically enough people to make that an enclave, yeah, you know? So there were people. You know, Italian Americans or Italians who immigrated here and became Americans never learned to speak English. You know, because yeah. they lived in Little Italy, or they lived in Chinatown. They never needed to learn it. You know, they they ran a business, but all their clients were other people of the same ethnic group, same immigrant community. But but that requires a certain number. You mm-hmm. need certain numbers in order to have that that and and usually that doesn't last beyond a generation. I mean, Little Italy or maybe two generations but little italy in new york now it's not inhabited mostly by Italians, you know because once their kids go to school here like you talked to you were talking about kids kids are like sponges they just absorb everything you know so i mean there was no english as a second language program when my dad immigrated here right mm. he was no he was 11 years old when he immigrated here and he just started going to public schools and eight, seven years later, he graduated valedictorian. Now, how did that well, happen? You know, because he was a kid. It just, everything, you know, absorbed in. So once you get even those enclaves, often, become, I mean, little Italy and New York is more of a tourist trap yeah. now. It's not really where Italians <laughs> yes. live, <You> know, <laughs> they live all over the place. Miami is different. I mean, because Miami is an entire
0: city. city. Yeah.
1: Though there's little Haiti.
0: A little, I was going to say the little Haiti, there's a little Havana, which yeah. is now filled with Venezuelans. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh. yeah.
1: When I went, I went there in 2019 or 20, I don't remember. And yeah, right. there was a big Venezuelan diaspora. That makes it beautiful. But yeah, it's not anymore Cuba. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I brought up the question of asking Rowan her experience because I remember talking about prior conversations in the show we were talking a little bit about the culture clash. And I was interested in that even, you know, learning in the US context, what is conservative or liberal, Republican and Democrat. Uh, how, how have you learned to navigate these if you're comfortable talking about that?
1: Yeah, it, it is still hard, I'm not gonna lie, because what you identify with is different from your political belief, it's different from your religious belief. and. I feel they're all clashing somewhere in my head and I couldn't figure them out. And sometimes what you do when you move to a country, you go back to the Lebanese you know, that came here before you and you wanna learn from them. What do you think about this issue? What do you think? What is better for Lebanon? Sometimes you connect it as a foreign policy to it because this is what you care about the moment you move here. When you move here, you don't care who advocate for taxes and who does not. You don't care who, will give you i don't know a good social security or medicare because you're not there yet your head body heart everything is Mm. still back home about the foreign policy first and then you start knowing actually no domestic issues are what is affecting me my family my household so no i need to care about those stuff but it takes you a while then so i believe that navigate them this comes to the individual it's just very subjective it's how you look at stuff because not every Lebanese will look at at the same policy and have the same opinion but if we want to talk statistic i would say the biggest number of Lebanese, and please correct me professor if i'm wrong are republican here in the u.s Mm. based on statistics that have been published by the power institute if i'm not if i'm not mistaken and we see less of a tendency to see Lebanese as Democrats. But which Lebanese you see as Democrat are the Muslim Lebanese that do identify very hardly with their Muslim identity, because this is where they identify. Like when you ask them what you are, I'm Muslim. It's not that they don't want to say anymore that they are Lebanese, but they don't want to remove this umbrella that is their their religion, which is beautiful but also now you feel this clash of religion and politics and identity all coming into a weird mix but take a poll because like what you see as muslim in Lebanon, either shia or sunni in Lebanon, is very different from what is muslim here in the u.s like islam had like been modernized in a way i'm 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 just not talking about the religion itself i'm talking about how the religion is seen in u.s politics let's frame okay. it that way like the policies they put forward the other minorities they support you wouldn't see this in any political religious group in lebanon so you you feel a clash and like as a political science student and former civil servant when I look at it, if you want to analyze it just from a political perspective, it's a mess. You can't analyze it. I'm not yeah. going to lie to you <laughs> like you can't understand it. You can't do. OK. If this guy is this in Lebanon, I would expect or forecast in our scenario that he will turn up to be Republican or Democrat. Can't.
2: it doesn't translate no. at all. You're yeah. absolutely right. It doesn't translate because there are different issue sets. There's different histories of the parties and what they've stood for. Yeah, it's very hard to make that. But isn't that
0: one of the biggest failures are, of our political system, especially, is that they cannot make room for those changes? It's as if, in my opinion, it's as if you are given these two and you have to kind of fit yourself into them, even if it doesn't make sense.
2: It's a binary choice. Yeah, Your political system is based on a binary choice. That's true. And, and I don't know what it would be like in this country if if say we had a multi-party parliamentary system, I think it would look a lot different, you know? So if you think about, let's say in 2016, instead of having a presidential election with two parties, you know, Trump versus Clinton, you had a parliamentary system. You probably would have had a, a party led by Bernie Sanders, socialist party. You would have had a party led by Hillary Clinton, left of center, mainstream kind of party. You would have had a party led by I don't know Marco Rubio, you know the right of center, and then you would have had Donald Trump's party far right, and and the vote would have been, you know some coalition would have had to be formed, and then you would have had some coalition government with a prime minister and you know then you'd have now that's not necessarily a solution because that can end up in disaster. Yeah. You look at Israel now, where in order to you know stay out of jail, Bibi Demiahu formed a coalition that included war criminals. Yeah. And it can be a recipe for gridlock, you know, where you have to have another election three months later Lebanon. Or, Lebanon, Lebanon.
1: Or, Lebanon, or, or, right? or Lebanon,
2: where you can't come to the decisions of who's going to be the prime minister. But in other societies, that has often been the solution. So like in Germany, you had the Greens were in coalition with the social Democrats, you know, so. But here, yeah, when it's all kind of binary, you You have, If you want to be politically active, you have to choose. And I think you're right. I think Lebanese here, especially those whose immigrant roots are further back when it was mostly Christian, tend to be Republican. And and part of that is because of white. We want to be with the party of the elite, right? We want to be the party of the white elite. That shows that we're, you know, Democrats are fighting for black people and minorities and all that. We don't want to be seen as part of that. And then also, honestly, a lot of the Lebanese immigrated here were in business and merchants, and that and they just saw the Republican Party as more representative. You know, Lebanese didn't immigrate here and work in factories the way a lot of yeah. other immigrant groups did.
1: They came here to make money. They here. came
2: here to make money, even when they were poor, even when they came here poor. Yeah. I always tell people, Lebanese don't work in factories. We don't do, factories. That's that <laughs> <Lebanese> don't <laughs> do factories.
1: Stereotype, yes, but it's also true. It's true. Uh, Lebanese, Black,
2: you know. I mean, even the Lebanese that went to Detroit. It wasn't to work in the factories. It was to run the stores and the grocery stores and be the manager or be the, managers. Or mean, be the yeah. managers. This
1: is a social problem in Lebanon because even after the crisis in 2019, Lebanon went through a huge social crisis that we're still going through right now. And there was a lot of vacancies. But guess what were the vacancies? It was... At the gas station in Lebanon, it's not like the U.S. You, you don't pull your gas. Someone needs to put it for you. It's how the system is made. So and like to have some, I don't know, cleaning people. Right. All of this. And those were all vacant. That would make you good money to eat, to survive, to feed your family.
2: But Lebanese wouldn't do it.
1: They didn't want to do it. But you're starving and you're dying on the street. Why don't you want to do it? And this is the same how they think when they leave the country. If I'm leaving this country, I want to make billions. And based on statistics, again, they do make billions. They have this business mind. They're very smart. They're like, they're just savvy. They know how to operate and like negotiating stuff in a business, making money, getting creative. Okay, if this country needs transportation, let me get a transportation company out. Like they just, Entrepreneurial, yeah, and very adventurous.
2: And the Lebanese diaspora has, in many ways, been the savior of Lebanon because the money that goes back to Lebanon from the diaspora I mean, as bad as shape as Lebanon is in now, think how much worse it would be if there weren't money going back to Lebanon. And that's true with that's true with a lot of the Central American immigration here. When if they're able to get into the country, even if they're not documented. And they work.
0: There are some cities and some countries that make more money off remittances from the U.S.
2: Else. than anything else. Yeah. There's so many homes, rural homes built in Salvador by money that was Sent wired, over. wired back.
0: I think this is, it's funny you guys are talking about that, especially in your point about siding with the side of the money elite, right? The right elite. And oh my, I bring this up this article all the time and I forgot what it was, but it was in The Economist. I wish I could remember the title. It was talking about I'm sorry to bring this into the Lebanese discussion. Latinos in the US and their political leanings. And they were very clear. It varies depending on how they see themselves. Are they a minority in the US? Are they hardworking people just trying to make a living? Like, are they in between? Like, it was completely fractured in terms of even the terminology used Latino, Latinx, which most people I know don't use person of it's color not a Spanish
2: word exactly I mean yeah. it's absurd it's an Americanized
0: <laughs> word that they've kind of put onto this group
2: Spanish is a gendered language like all romance languages yeah so you can't ungender one word <laughs> <laughs> I'm inclined glad to agree it I think
0: what's interesting to me about this is also a certain conversation about class in this country right that's it. this country is so messy I don't I, not yeah. you know even to just separate it from the politics of the theoretical mind. What a what a mess! <laughs> it, it is. It
2: is. It is very. It is. It is and that's what makes it fascinating. But you 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 also got to see that there is nothing else like this country. There has never before in history been a country that it, that is not. We are dominated. I mean, in terms of the power structure, yes, this is a white Northern European dominant power structure terms of the elites, as we were saying earlier, with the exception of Obama, every single American president has been a white Northern European male, and with the exception of Kennedy and Biden, Protestant male. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a pretty stark statement. But at the same time, there is, it's not like France or Germany, where there's a common ethnic identity, right? There's such a thing as the French people or the Russian people or the German people it's partially constructed because even those peoples are in fact the mixtures of other people <laughs> who have come together but the myth is there is a French people and the American narrative is is very different and while people here while there is a hierarchy there really never before has been, this kind of political entity where 320 million people of various backgrounds including you know tens of millions who were once enslaved in this country are attempting to be together as as one country so the American experiment is remarkable and has really there's really never been anything like it I mean the Ottoman Empire wasn't like it because that was imperial it was run out of you know, Istanbul and the local, as long as you just had to abide by the by the empire's rules, but otherwise the local communities maintained their local identity. The Roman Empire wasn't like that. There's never, the Russian, the Soviet slash Russian Empire wasn't like that because it was all run very centralized from Moscow. Uh, there's really never been any attempt to do something like this. So the fact that we mess it up a lot is, I guess, not a surprise. The, the problem is we have to figure it out. So we're both the lab rats and the scientists at the same time, right? We're yeah. both the ones running through the maze, to, <laughs> but we're also the scientists trying to make this experiment work, or at least those of goodwill are trying to make this experiment work. But yeah, I'm, I'm just agreeing with you. It's a very messy, it's a very messy phenomenon. And, and we don't have a lot of templates in terms of world history to look back at yeah. how you do this.
1: As much as we say it's a messy phenomenon, also the US has brought a lot to people, like to all of us, at least the three of us here that absolutely it brought a lot. Like I wasn't when I came to the US, I wasn't a believer in the American dream. I was like, okay, I'm tired. I learned about this in school. It was fun. It does not exist. Then when I lived here, six months in with hard work, the American dream do exist because I lived in many countries in the world. When you put hard work, you don't get this outcome you get in the US. It's just amplified. Whatever Mm. input is multiplied by three and you get the output, which is a result. Literally, your work multiplied by three and you get the result. That's amazing. You get always a result from your input in other countries, but the output will not be multiplied. Whatever you put, you get out. So I felt like with, All the flaws that the American system has, it's giving us today, immigrants, an amazing opportunity, a place to strive and to become, where our name is like literally bigger than just one state, bigger than just one country, because the U.S. is very well connected. If you become famous in the U.S., you're famous in the world. If you're famous in Lebanon, you might be famous in the world, but what are your chances? Like... You need to look at it from also that perspective. The opportunity. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm not gonna undermine any Lebanese that become like became a world star, but like how easier could it be here? Like, right? You right. know, like you don't have to do like some extraordinary stuff in the U.S. and you're like you're world known. So it's just like I still don't know because...
2: what the Kardashians have done.
1: Okay, but everyone but know, who doesn't know them. Like? <laughs>
2: What's just the saying? They're famous for being famous.
1: Yeah, for just being. For famous, just being famous. That's right.
2: You know that's a that's a good point uh, you make. No matter how messed up this country seems, and it's hugely messed up for a whole. I mean, how many countries, you know, literally keep track of the number of school shootings? Mm-hmm. That that's actually a statistic. How many children get killed in schools? But that being said, I. The way I think about it sometimes, when I think about this country's flaws and problems and and my fears and frustrations, is I am still happy that in September 1920, my grandfather put his family on a boat and came to America. Right, I'm still happy that he didn't stay because I don't. Well, I would have been a different person because, but you know what i'm saying i don't know who knows what would have happened if his family my father and his siblings had lived in lebanon throughout the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and i mean as long as i'm still happy that my grandfather did that then i can't say i've given up on this country yeah (laughs) because that's kind of i don't know salomon how your parents feel? are they still happy are you still happy that your parents that's so... Immigrated here. That's so
0: interesting, right? Because, I don't know if... Did I say this in the conversation? They came when they were young. So when you were talking about that, that's what I thought about. My mom was around 11 years old. It's
2: like, my father. My mother yeah. was
0: 11, yeah. And my, fa- my father was 16. Uh-huh. Both came in 1981 separately. I think they both have different thoughts. My dad, I don't think, cares. I think my dad's like, no, I'm an American. Like, I like it here. I'm happy here. I've, you know, I love San Francisco. I like Texas. Like, uh-huh. I like where I've been and I'm happy to be here. I think my mom has more complicated feelings just because of the war. I think that's another thing is the reason, like you said, what was the push? What was the pull? Right. It was right. a pretty big push. It was push. Yeah. And pull. You know, so, yeah. but from my perspective, I can't really imagine me as a person, as the culmination of things happening anywhere else. Being anywhere else. You know, yeah. I think this is a pretty... uniquely American venture.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and once you are part of it, it's almost like a sugar addiction. (laughs) You can't really give it up. You can't really go back at that point.
0: This this is what I thought about, too, when Ron was saying that. I think the best thing about America is the worst thing about America and that everything is put to the up-tenth degree. Yeah. So when things yeah. are good, they're great. And when things are bad, they're awful, they're horrible. And yeah. I thought about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I'm not sure if either of you have read the book, but I, I was just thinking about what a uniquely American setting for a novel and the theme that explores, yeah. you know? Yeah, it um, couldn't be
2: placed anywhere else. No, absolutely not. You know, and I
0: think that's really interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I guess. Wow. That was I think that's a really good place to end it personally. Uh-huh.
2: I, I want to mention one thing because we're kind of tying together our, our cultures here. Do you know there's a a Lebanese singer, not as famous as Fairuz, but it, her group is called Hanin y Son Cubano. She's a Lebanese singer and she was visiting Cuba. I think the story goes she was visiting Cuba and she heard Cuban music and she said you know there's a lot of Cuban music, and Arab music, it could kind of go together. So she has this group, it's called H-A-N-I-N-E, Hanin, and the Cuban sound, Ison Cubano. And it's a Cuban band and her singing Arabic, Arabic songs. That's so Cuban interesting. Music. And it's, this, it's kind of like Afro-Cuban, you know, with just yeah. this, but, but Afro-Cubans' roots have more to do with the people actually being mixing. So anyway, as someone who has Cuban descent and Lebanese descent, people say, Wow, that's so far apart. And I say, No, listen to Hanini Slomkuban. It's not that <laughs> far apart. It's very similar. This
1: is what I'm gonna do next. That's just, <laughs> like I'm excited to listen.
2: listen to her, she's wonderful. It's really wonderful. This it's re- it gets your blood flowing. Very... Maybe
1: you should add it to the audience, like a small Cuban. Our people would be just <laughs> after listening to that. I can definitely put it in the
0: podcast notes.
1: Thank you for having.
2: Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you.
0: This is going to be improvised because I tried to write an outro. But it was it was kind of difficult. me honestly to get the words that I was trying to say out into the open but I would say this before the conversation this wasn't off the record so I feel comfortable talking about it we talked about President Obama we talked about President Barack Obama and as a result of that pre-conversation warm-up I got Obama's first book which if you don't know dreams from my father it's about his early life before he I think ever ran for office I'm not done with it yet almost but right now I'm at his community organizing career and it's been it's been very insightful for me it's been very insightful for me on a personal level but also thinking about this show it's interesting right because this show is born out of two very different political landscapes. One of which was the Obama era, right? Where myself and I assume much of my audience first came into some sort of nascent political thought process, right? Like we were all kids, but we matured as it went on. And then it was immediately followed By the Trump era, which was a backlash against the Obama era, in my viewing of it. And and this podcast is a result of that, in a weird way, right? I don't know if it's a backlash or a response, how to situate it. But it was definitely born in that context, where... I guess we can say... My own personal... Political leanings and beliefs and whatnot, ideology, whatever, right, We're born into this one era that was immediately stripped away into the polar opposite. And I would say much more barbaric or, you know, we'll say vulgar landscape. And again, this is also interesting because this is a whole episode centered around the Middle Eastern diaspora. It, it feels very problematic to bring up Obama and Trump in that context, but it got me thinking. They got me thinking about, I say this a lot, but the nature of this country, right? The, the mosaic I've been trying to put together and that I'm going to continue to put together because this has not been, you know, there have been bumps. There have been things where I've, I've had to reconsider how I approach a topic or how I do a topic or what do I want to do with a certain idea. And I'm learning, I'm learning. This is a very much an in-progress project, you know? I'm grateful for Rawan for coming on this show and I'm grateful, incredibly grateful for Professor Habib to take time out of his day and schedule to come on this show as well. And that back and forth, right, is what is what stuck with me is that cross-generational diaspora conversation about the fluidity of identity. Right, and the ease of which some people can fall into Americanness, right? Like, not to compare myself to Professor Habib, of course, who is much more accomplished than I am, but to have been born here versus to have come here, you know? And I think that's something that I've considered a lot, especially even beyond this conversation, right? Which did provide a lot of insights, even thinking about my parents' generation and my tías and my tios and my family who came here in the 80s to me and my cousins and my brother and the people around me who have a similar background, to just think about the immense privilege that comes with that. The United States has its problems, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that, especially right now, you know, if we think about the flawed nature of the immigration system or the Supreme Court case that's being argued right now against affirmative action. We, we there's, there's a certain lack of perspective we hold, but I do think it's important to point out. I mean, this is a country where it's, it's the nature of immigration is flawed, but I mean, it's it's kind of beautiful. Right. Like, it's beautiful how someone can come here from Lebanon or El Salvador or Vietnam. And become American like it's it's pretty incredible. They can join a community, whether it's in D.C., whether it's in New York or Miami or San Francisco or Houston. Or on the border in McAllen and Brownsville and become an American like what does that mean? I think we're going to have to figure out. And I think there are definitely kinks that need to be worked out on that. But I do think at the end of the day, Rowan's observation that. And I might get some flack for this, but the work you put in. The output tends to match it. And I think that's incredible. And yeah, I'm excited for season two. I want to thank you all for joining me as... A, what did a porver say on the first episode? As we put in the work and helped to try to expand some mindsets and expand some perspectives and have people come on to tell their stories and plant their flag. I mean, that's honestly the biggest takeaway I've gotten from this. I never expected the response to be as positive as it ended up being. The highlight of it is when people come to me and tell me, like, What I like about your show is you have people on, whether they're artists or academics or journalists, and they tell their stories from their perspective, right? It's not an outsider's one. And ultimately, that is what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for the people that have come on this show so far and the people who will come on this show in the future. I'm thankful for all of you for listening. Obviously, once again, I want to give a big shout out to the Mina Forum and Professor Habib for helping make this an incredible season finale to what I hope is the first of many great seasons of this beautiful American mosaic. I want to thank you all for listening and I'll see you next time. This has been Minority Report with me, your host, Salomon Flamenco. You can follow us on social media at minority underscore report underscore pod. You can follow me on my personal Instagram at SalmonFlamingos should really consider changing that one day and if you want to be a part of the conversation email us at minorityreports.beat at gmail.com that's all we have for you we'll see you in a month or two thank you all so much Bye bye